in the introduction to his commentary on John's Gospel, John Calvin said that while the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, show us Jesus' body, John shows us Christ's soul. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record for us the life and ministry of Jesus. They show forth the gospel. They proclaim to us Jesus' love for sinners. They tell us about Jesus' compassion. Other gospel writers uh, have that phrase, Jesus had compassion on them. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about Jesus' compassion, John shows us Jesus' compassion. He does this in a unique way. He shows us the heart of our Savior. He shows us an emotional Jesus who loves sinners. An emotional Jesus who grieves with us. And that fact has come into sharp focus in recent chapters. Since chapter 11, on five occasions, we are given deep insight into Jesus' soul. In chapter 11, we were told how he was deeply moved. John relates to us how at the grave of Lazarus, he was deeply troubled in his spirit, how he even sobbed in grief at the grave of his friend. In chapter 12, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. And in verse 21 of our passage, we are told that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. You see, we are being shown how Jesus identifies with us. We're being shown his heart and his soul were given an intimate look into the heart of the Savior who loves us. There's something striking about this passage, how we know that all 12 disciples were around this table until verse 31, after Jesus had dismissed Judas. But although all 12 disciples are there at that table, you'll notice how the camera zooms in on two disciples. And it happens in all four Gospels. There are two that are drawn out, as it were, into the light of Jesus' presence. Judas and Peter. You see, these two are held out to us to show us, on the one hand, with Judas the reality of false disciples. But on the other hand, with Peter, to show us the reality of weak disciples. It reminds us that there will be, until the Lord Jesus comes again, there will be in the church of Jesus Christ, those who in the end never really embraced Jesus as Savior. And on the other hand, there will be people like us. There will be weak disciples. There will will be those that struggle to understand whose faith is weak. And 
that we can take both warning and encouragement from this. And so let's, let's think first of all about J- Jesus and Judas. Now this passage records for us Judas' final moments. Judas had been present for the foot washing and Jesus had told the disciples about the prophecy from Psalm 41.9. And he did that to steady them. So that when Judas did betray Jesus, their faith would not be shaken. But as Jesus spoke about Judas' impending betrayal, we see that he was troubled in spirit. And again, this gives us insight into the heart of our Savior. You see, this reminds us that as Jesus fulfilled prophecy in his life and ministry, this prophecy about a betrayer, that this wasn't just like a piece of the puzzle or a checklist that Jesus, in a matter-of-fact way, just said, oh, well, this is fulfilling the Scripture. Judas' betrayal greatly disturbed Jesus. And we need to ask ourselves, I think whether you came to faith as a child or whenever you came to faith, this no doubt disturbed us. I think any child who who reads this is disturbed by the fact that one of the twelve handed Jesus over to be crucified. Does it disturb us? That Judas would sell the priceless Son of God for the price of a slave. Do you grasp the infinite worth of Jesus so much so that you are troubled when Judas or any other false disciple sells Jesus out and betrays him. You see, Jesus was in the final descent into the horror of the cross, and every step down increased the pain that was being laid upon him. Jesus had washed Judas' feet and You may remember how that was a beautiful, acted-out sermon illustration of the gospel. Of how he would stoop low and he would die for sinners and he would rise again and take up his place in glory. That was an act of grace toward Judas. And what we see here is that Judas now refuses Jesus for the last time and he walks out into the night, into the dust. And verses 27 and 30, I think, give us insight into the deeper dynamics that are at work here. We read that after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and... It was night. 
I pointed out to you how John loves these double meanings. He's signaling that not only did Judas go out into the darkness outside, but he went out into the darkness of hell. You see, this was a culmination of a pattern in Judas' life. What happened in the upper room did not begin in the upper room. There was a sin in Judas' life that he was not willing to lay at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, help me, forgive me, save me. His refusal to embrace Jesus and be delivered from his sin of covetousness led to this moment. And friends, this teaches us that apostasy, denying Jesus, betraying him and leaving him, that it always has a trajectory. It's not just a sudden thing. It's the culmination of a pattern of not taking sins to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me and help me and cleanse me. There is a profound mystery here. Because on the one hand, we know that Judas' betrayal was foreordained by God. It was foretold in Psalm 41. But on the other hand, right to the end, Judas was offered a choice. A choice that he refused to take. Dipping a morsel in a morsel of bread and sharing it with someone, that was a gesture of love and affection. The foot washing and the offering of bread to Judas, those were the finer, final offers of love and grace by the Lord Jesus. Judas had his feet washed. He took the bread, but he rejected the Savior who was behind those gestures. And we'll think about that more in a moment, but let, next let's think about Judas, or excuse me, Jesus and Peter. Jesus and Peter. Peter is... The example of a weak disciple. He is trusting in Jesus, but there is much that he did not understand. And we can be a lot like Peter. It is clear that at this point, Peter still thought that being a disciple of Jesus rested upon what he did. After Jesus told him that he was going away, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That's the same phrase that Jesus used in John 10 when he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, Jesus, he was reminding Peter and he's reminding us I don't need your sacrificial death. You need my sacrificial death. You see, like Peter, we need to be told again and again that our salvation 
that being a follower of Jesus Christ is not about what we do, but it's about what Christ has done. It's not about trusting ourselves, but trusting Jesus. It's not about our strength, but about His strength. And like Peter, we often have to learn this the hard way. You see, when we trust in ourselves and our own strength and, and we, we think too much of ourselves and we think we can do it in our own strength, very often Jesus graciously lets us stumble in order that we might be humbled and come back to Him and trust in Him. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. In verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now again, here is one of those nuanced things for us to be aware of in the Christian life. It, it's good for us to make commitments to the Lord. It's, it's right for us to resolve to follow Jesus more closely, to forsake sin, to live for Him. Those are good things. But the question is, do we make those promises? Do we resolve to do those things in our own strength or in the strength of Christ and His Spirit? You see... Peter was doing what James was condemning in our reading of the law. That self-confidence, that boasting in our own strength. And we should thank the Lord for the times He gently takes us by the hand in our foolish boasting and says, Will you? Will you? And that's what He did for Peter. And it's, we'll think about it in a second, there, there, is, there are similarities between Judas and Peter, but there's one key difference. And the similarities, I think, should disturb us a bit because both of these men fell at the point of their covetousness. Judas coveted financial gain, influence, prosperity. Peter coveted power and recognition as the leader. The sin that led to their failures is the same, and I think that's one of the reasons that in all four Gospels, these two are drawn out into the spotlight. And, and if you were in Jerusalem later that night after everything went down, and you ran into Judas, and then you ran into Peter on the street, would we have been able to discern a difference? Both knew they had sinned. Both were sorrowful. I think there's, there's a, a warning here, a gracious warning for us. The, the lesson is, when we fall into patterns of sin and we refuse to bring our sins to Jesus, we can't just say, oh well, I'm just backsliding. 
warns us against complacency. It warns us against saying, I'll deal with that sin tomorrow. I'll bring it to Jesus tomorrow. It's interesting in the other Gospels when when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. They went around the table. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? There was... There was a self-examination. Eleven of those men did not put it past themselves that they would betray Jesus. But Judas said something different. He didn't say, Lord, is it I? He said, Rabbi, is it I? That's held out to us because it was clear that Judas never bowed to Jesus as Lord. He never brought his sins to him. The key difference between Peter and Judas is we are told that in the end, Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. And Luke records it for us. It's in Luke 22. Luke 22, verses uh, 60 to 62, uh, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. See, that's the difference. He remembered the word of the Lord. And uh, I think I've, as I've come to know my Savior more throughout the years, my, my understanding of this, uh, this verse that says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I used to read that. That must have been a look of disapproval. I think it was a look of grace and love. Because did not Jesus say, I have prayed for you, that your faith not fail you? We need to remember the word that Jesus speaks to us. We need to bring our sins to him, knowing that he is gracious. That he is eager to forgive us and restore us. But finally, let's think about how Jesus, in this upper room passage, opens his heart towards sinners like us. Well, this is pretty remarkable because if there was ever a time that Jesus could have been excused for being self-absorbed, for saying, okay, teaching time is done, it would have been this moment. The burden of the cross was squarely upon Jesus' shoulders. He was clearly troubled in spirit, and yet we see the depth of his love for sinners in his tender care and instruction. And friends, this is a love and care that is ours as well. Let me just highlight a few ways that we see the heart of our Savior open to us. And first is this highlight of that dark prophecy. 
Now we know this story well, but could you imagine the emotion in that room when Jesus said, one of you will betray me? Imagine the anxiety and the uncertainty. But Jesus steadies his disciples. And he tells them about this impending betrayal. He says, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And Jesus reveals why. Why is he saying this? I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Literally in the Greek, you may believe that I am. You see, Jesus took something here that could have destroyed the faith of the disciples. And he gave instruction so that it would become something that would actually strengthen their faith, that it would actually confirm that he is indeed the very son of God. And friends, Jesus does the same thing for us. He steadies us with his word. He still says to us, look, in this life you will have trouble. When things go wrong, when things go sideways, when bad things happen, remember the word I've spoken to you. Yes, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We see his heart also in his troubled spirit. And here we, we get insights into the enormous burden that Jesus carried for us as the sin-bearing Son of God. John gives us deep insight into what Isaiah meant when he said that Christ would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How he describes Christ bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. You may need these words today. Are you troubled in spirit? You can find comfort in the fact that Jesus understands that state of mind intimately. And as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, he is eager to sympathize with you and help you and uphold you. But also, we, we see his heart, and this may on the surface seem odd, but we see his heart in his dismissal of Judas. When it came time to dismiss Judas, it's clear that Jesus was greatly troubled. Now, yes, he was troubled at Judas' betrayal, but he was troubled, I think, because he knew that his dismissal of Judas was the point of no return. Because when Judas left that room, Jesus knew that Judas would become the human agent that would bring Jesus to his cross. He was troubled by his betrayal. It grieved him, but he was troubled because he knew the cross was imminent. This was a deliberate act by Jesus. He deliberately 
sovereignly dismissed Judas that he might be brought to the hour of his cross. And he did all of this willingly because he loves sinners like us. But Jesus shows us his heart by giving us the right perspective on his cross. He, he tells us of the glory of his cross. Verses 31 to 32, when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, you'll notice how the mood almost changes in the room. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. See, Jesus gives us the lens through which to view the cross. He wants us to see the hour of his suffering and his humiliation as the hour of his glory. Why does he want that for us? Because he wants us to know how great our God is, how much he loves us. He wants us to see his heart. And where do we see that most clearly? In the glory of his cross. The hour of his glory is the hour of our salvation. And then finally, we see his heart in this simple commandment. Verse 33, little children, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, Jesus shows us his heart in this because he, he shows us what true love is. He showed us at the cross. He, he showed it here in the upper room. Now, friends, there's a little thing we should take hold of here. Notice how he addresses the disciples and, and he addresses us too. Little children. Little children. That should comfort us. That Jesus understands that we're like children. He knows that we struggle. He knows that we're often disobedient. He knows that we struggle to love one another. But he deals with us tenderly as children. These disciples, the 11 that were left, would in a matter of hours go out and fail their Savior miserably. One betrayed him, one denied him, and the rest forsook him and fled. And friends, you may be here today and feel like you have failed your Savior miserably. But here is Jesus showing you his heart. He pities you like children. He desires to minister to you and help you. He's eager to look upon you and restore you help you. Friends, take heart that even though we fail him miserably, that he is pleased to deal with us like a gracious father, like our older brother, 
And he wants, us to res- he wants us to be restored. He wants us to know his love. And friends, as Peter, as Peter did, Peter, I think, came to know the love of Christ more intimately because he knew what it was to fail and then be restored. And so as we see the heart of Jesus, as we know his grace and his forgiveness and his comfort, may that let us lead, lead us to trust him more, to love him more, and to follow him more closely. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, for it is truth. We thank you for your promise that you will sanctify us by it. And so we pray, O oh God, that you might conform us unto the image of Jesus. Lord, we know that we have failed you miserably. We know that we boast in our own strength. We know that we struggle to understand the words you speak to us. And yet, Lord, you deal with us tenderly and graciously. Instruct us, O Lord, in the paths of your righteousness. Help us by your spirit to walk in them. And Lord, may we heed your command. May we, as we look to the cross and see the great love of Jesus for sinners, Lord, may we obey that new commandment to love one another. Lord, may our love for each other be a powerful witness to a dying world. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.